Hey everyone, before we dive into today's episode, I wanted to let you know that I created a new fun little resource for you. If you've been here before, you know that I love creating stuff in Canva and I also love reading and listening to books. And what I created is my ultimate guide to my top four books related to creativity and healing that I wish I would have read in grad school. So I called it the Innovative Therapist Book Guide. It's totally free. It's going to guide you through my top four books. I bet maybe one you'll be expecting, but I bet some of the other ones you'll be pretty surprised about. So uh, yeah, I'd love to hear what your guesses were and what you ended up thinking of my top four books that I'd recommend you read if you want to think outside the box, think innovatively about human relationships and how we can heal ourselves and heal the world. So grab it for free at drhondorp.com forward slash books. That's D-R-H-O-N-D-O-R-P.com forward slash books. And I can't wait to hear what you think. All right, let's dive into the episode. Hi, this is Dr. Sean Hondorp, clinical psychologist and health behavior expert. And this is the Motivation Made Easy podcast. Each week, I'll be bringing you science-backed information, strategies, and inspiration to master your relationship with food so that you can feel in control of your habits, respect your body, and free your mind to focus on the things in life that truly matter. I'm a clinical psychologist, and I've had years of experience doing research and patient care in the field of weight management and eating disorders. So I've had the insider view on understanding what works and what we're getting very, very wrong. In this podcast, you'll find practical information and tips based on motivation science, interviews from experts, and stories from real people and how they've navigated their relationship with food. My goal is to empower you with information, inspire you to make changes that fit you, and feel 100% supported along the way. So settle in and make yourself comfortable and get excited to learn and take action for a better, healthier, more energized life. Also, if you are a therapist, dietitian, or helping professional and you work with people with disordered eating or who are struggling with eating and weight concerns, uh, I have a free tool for you that I had way too much fun developing. So I, I developed this after a workshop we did recently. And um, to be honest, I don't exactly know how many people listen to this podcast that are professionals versus individuals. So uh, I'll be excited to, if you are a professional listening to this podcast, feel free to shoot me an email or say hello. Um, But if you're someone who you've been working with a client and maybe a client says something like, I really like intuitive eating, but I ultimately really want to lose weight or in your opinion they just they have a hard time not focusing on weight loss and you notice it kind of gets in the way of them doing what they want to do or getting in touch with their body and as a professional you're not necessarily sure the best ways to guide them because maybe you understand why they want to lose weight but you're also um, you want the best for them and you want them to build up their own self-trust but you're not sure what to do. You might empathize with them. You might tell them the science about dieting and weight loss and um, trying to convince them to not to diet. But ultimately, you might feel a little bit stuck. So how can you help them explore what's right for them 
without imposing your own agenda, which tends to backfire. So I created this free step-by-step -step guide to walk you through my number one favorite exercise. This is based on internal family systems theory, my favorite thing, um, and it helps you help your clients navigate this nuanced dynamic with the different parts of them that still want to lose weight. So as a professional, it's my favorite way to help clients build trust while also taking the pressure off of me as a professional to know the exact right advice to give or say. So it's a really great tool. It's a win-win. You can grab it for free and exactly how to do it at drhondorp, D-R-H-O-N-D-O-R-P.com forward slash parts, P-A-R-T-S. So grab it for free today at drhondorp.com forward slash parts. And if you use it with a client, make sure you email me and let me know. All right. And just as a reminder, this podcast is for educational and informational purposes only and should never be construed as any form of professional advice. If you need a professional to guide you, please, please get one. All right, everyone, let's dive in. Hey, everyone, welcome back to a very special episode of the Motivation Made Easy podcast. This is officially episode 100. I can believe it and I can't. What I thought we'd do for this episode, unfortunately, I was, um, I've was i had Taylor, my wonderful intern Taylor, joining me on episodes lately, but she had some dental work done and I'm going on vacation soon and we couldn't find a time, so I'm going to record this one. I said I wasn't doing any more solo episodes, but I don't think it's going to feel like a solo episode because what I'm going to do is I'm going to just pull some of my favorite clips from the all of the episodes with a strong focus. Actually, I think the only episodes I pull from are interview episodes because they're my favorites. <laughs> I had a really hard time choosing, which means we got some really good clips for you. And I'm just going to reflect a little bit as we go about this incredible podcasting journey I'm going to touch on, I've already looked at all the clips I'm going to pull. We're going to touch on a number of themes, including, but not limited to, some of my guests' really just amazing, eloquent quotes about what it really means to unpack weight and health and what it has meant for them as individuals to do that. In that realm, we're going to hear from Jen Radke of the Fat Girl Book Club podcast, and Marie Pierre who of The Balanced Practice and, and The Balanced Dietitian on Instagram. Uh, they both had incredible quotes. They were both pretty early in my journey of podcasting. Jen was episode eight, and it was just so fun to revisit those incredible interviews. So we're going to start there. Then we're going to talk a little bit about intuitive eating and just what it is. And again, some quotes from some of my amazing guests who really have helped me better understand what it is and what it isn't. And so we're going to, we're going to go there that we're going to hear from Samantha Barish of Tap Into Nutrition. And we're also going to hear from Kim Daniels, who talks about IFS and intuitive eating. And actually was a pretty recent guest, but I just had to include her in this episode. And then we are going to talk a little bit about some guests who touch on the topic of challenging research and the status quo and really the courage that it takes to do that. 
So we're going to hear from Michelle Seeger, who has really been someone that I've looked up to for a long time, and I got the amazing privilege of interviewing her on the podcast. She's done a lot of work with self-determination theory and applying it to movement and exercise and challenging the status quo of all these rules that we've been told that you have to exercise, breathe hard and sweat, and it has to be for 10-minute bouts. And um, you're going to hear about the vulnerability it took for her to challenge some of that. And then we're going to hear from Dahlia Kinsey, who does a lot of challenging the status quo of really just how research is as much as I love it, and we talk about that in that interview, it has a lot of flaws, and it really, really misses the mark in a lot of ways, and it misses the mark with assumptions that it makes about certain groups, and so we're going to touch on that there. Next, I have a bunch of clips about what probably is one of my favorite topics, which is navigating the nuance, and I have learned truly so much from my guests over the years. Um, it's interesting because you may notice, you know, if you see any of the workshops I'm doing lately, something I'm just really energized by is having nuanced conversations about this space because it's so, it is so nuanced. It's so individual. And I think that's listening to these clips from my podcast has reminded me of that. So I have a number of clips from my guests over these 100 episodes of how they navigate the nuance and how they make sense of this field and the polarization that exists in the field, both as professionals, but also as individuals navigating that world. So I have um, a whole bunch of people we hear from in that section, uh, Dr. Jillian Murphy, Shadow Ball, Amy Braden, Jesse Holden, Dr. Yami, uh, Rachel Rickabaugh, and Dr. Robin Pashby, all in that section. And Finally, last but not least, we have um, the wonderful Dr. Adia Gooden talking about unconditional self-worth. I, I did include this last because I think that, you know, when we dig underneath all of this eating and weight stuff, um, so often with my clients, we get to this point where like, ah, it's really not about the food. And I think it's one thing to know that, but it's a whole nother thing to experience that and then to have tools that can actually effectively help us go to those root causes in a way that feels effective. And I think Adia is brilliant and really one of my, I don't know, mentors, I'd say, and the conversation that she and I had over a year ago about unconditional worthiness and self-compassion still sticks with me. So that is what I'll be leaving you with today. So that's our episode. It's going to be really fun. So settle in and uh, let's go over the highlights from this 100 episode podcast. And I've been doing this since February 2021. So it's been a wild ride and incredible journey that I would not change for anything. So let's dive in. All right. So our first clip is from Jen Radke. Like I said in the intro, Jen really holds a special place in my heart, not only because I found her early on in my podcasting journey. I was just starting my podcast. She had been doing it for a while. She was so generous with her knowledge. It was just one of my first experiences of like, oh, wow, this person is doing this incredible work and getting to connect with them, getting to learn their personal story, getting to learn what lights them up, you know, from a career standpoint. She really lets us all 
in on her story in the whole episode. I highly recommend that you listen to all of it, but I I want you to listen to this clip. Um, She has so much humor, I think, and realness when it comes to talking about the challenges with unpacking um, concepts like weight and health. And I just love how she breaks this down in this clip. So let's, let's listen in. And when I did finally kind of pull it apart, what I realized was that I felt like I had been living the value of health for 20 years. I felt like this goal to get to a better place with my weight was health. That's what the value of health meant. And so then I had to start to pick apart that the things I was doing, and this is where I actually sat down and wrote a list of all the things I was doing in the name of health. Because I don't feel like when we start to get into values, I can sit here and tell you, you know, until I'm blue in the face that one of my values is family, that one of my values is family. But unless I'm doing anything to show you that my value of family is a priority for me, I'm not really living that value. So when I started to pull this apart with health, I sat down and wrote down all the things that I was doing in the name of health. And I looked at them all and I said, Jen, are these really healthy? Like, are these really things that make you feel good? And I, and I realized that, no, I'm actually doing most of these things under the value of being thin. Mm-hmm. And when I started to realize that, then I had then I had a more difficult problem, I think, because all of a sudden when I stopped saying, I'm going to not listen to social media, I'm not going to listen to all the, the stuff that comes up on the news, I'm not going to listen to what all these other people are saying about health, I now have, I can decide what does the value of health mean for me and do I really want to make that a priority and how am I going to do that? big questions. These are really, really big questions. And I think that they have to be answered individually for every single person. And for a while there, I had this whole mission statement written out for health. And then one day I looked at it and I went, you know what, what it boils down to for me is energy levels, is being able to live the life I want to live and having everything in my life back that up. And so for me, health is a, you know, multi-tiered thing. It's not just anymore the way it used to be, just about food and exercise and a number on the scale. It is now about how I'm feeling mentally and emotionally and what I'm doing to take care of myself, what I am doing to honor my body and my mind and my spirit And I am trying to incorporate all of that on a really practical level in my day-to-day life. And that again, not easy, not definitely not easy. (laughs) All right. So the next clip comes from Marie and I actually have two clips from this interview. The first one is a pretty short clip, but it's really just about her freeing herself from these 
you know, standards that people are, bodies are supposed to look a certain way, dietitian bodies are supposed to look a certain way. And just, I think you'll just hear the freedom in this quote. And then I have a second clip that I'm going to share right after, which is in response to our question about something you intrinsically love, your intrinsic, our intrinsic motivation question. Marie gives an answer that a lot of my guests give because I interview a lot of guests who have healed their relationship with food. And many of us are well aware that movement can be something that gets really extrinsically or uh, not internally motivated when it's so tied up with weight and body size. But you can hear in her answer just the, the freedom, again, that comes with exploring movements in a way that's giving freedom and choice and how that intrinsic love of the she says she loves doing competitions and triathlons and again this was a common answer so I just wanted to share that because that was my most common answer that people talked about is once they unhooked from or at least worked to unpair body size from movement it really allows them to just explore what truly works for them so i wanted to share both of those clips as a great example of that and i will say too that if you're not already as you know i'm not a big social media fan but i do follow a few people and Marie at, at the Balanced Dietitian and the Balanced Practice is has continues to come out with incredible content and she really is living this truth still to this day. So I interviewed her definitely over a year ago, probably longer, and uh, she's still really living that and it's very cool to watch. So make sure you follow her on Instagram as well something needs to be different. And for me, like that was, it was like starting to work with people. And even with my own self of like, if I hold these standards for people, like I will never be free. Like if I'm always scared to gain weight and be like a bigger dietitian and all of these things, like I will never be set free <laughs> and I will never be able to support other people being set free. I didn't always have a healthy relationship to movement. Um, I did prior to my eating disorder. Like I used to play competitive basketball. I used to be very, very active. And then my eating disorder kind of pushed that too much. Um, but within healing my relationship with food, and my body, I also healed my relationship with movement. And I can say like today, it's really something that I thoroughly enjoy. Nice. Um, and from the good place too, like it's not coming from anything restrictive or not fun. And if I can't do it, it's fine. Yeah. Um, and I started to do like competitions and like triathlons and things like that, that just like are to me super, super fun nice. um, and great ways to connect with my body as well. Like I always like to see, um, yeah, what different movements, how my body moves and my mobility and things like that. Like I find that super, super cool. And that's something that I really enjoy to do. All right, this next clip is from Samantha Barish. I brought Sam on twice to the podcast because I enjoyed our conversation so much the first time, and I was like, I just need to hang out with her more. This clip is from our first interview, which was really focused more on inclusive movements, but we talk about her journey and we talk about intuitive eating, and I just love this clip she has about intuitive eating and how we can teach it and what it is and what it isn't. And she just says it so well. So without further ado, let's jump into it. I think that the more that we can teach intuitive eating and make it a part of the dietetic education and schooling and set people up for success um, early on, 
you know, I think there's this thing of like, in, you know, you hear so much that, oh, that intuitive eating is just eat whatever you want, right? We can't be teaching people about intuitive eating. That's and, not healthy, quote like that's a, the quote that you hear. Like that's all good and everything, body positivity for sure, but that's not healthy. Right, right. And I keep going back to this place of, at the end of the day, I'm just a dietitian. I, I'm just valuing nutrition and all I'm doing that, that might feel different is I'm taking the morality out of it. We're just finding a way to make it more approachable. And we're finding a way to take morality, shame, um, fear, anxiety. We're looking at the full picture health, right? We're honoring mental health is just as important as physical health, but intuitive eating is there's nothing about it that is saying that, you know, you're, you just eating whatever you want, whenever you want, is going to mean that you're eating Cheetos and Oreos and crap all day. If that were the case, that's not intuitive eating, like continuing to bring people back to that. And if we're, if we have the ability to have numerous courses in, in the dietetic curriculum, so that we're able to drive that home to answer all those questions then. And then we have a bunch of those intuitive eating warriors just running around, you know, I almost wish that we could, like, I love that we've coined it as intuitive eating. And I love that concepts. And I, I think the workbook is incredible. It's always sitting on my work on my desk and ready um, for in session. If someone wants to walk through it, but at the end of the day, intuitive eating is just normal human being eating, right? It's, Mm -hmm. it's just normal eating. And all we're doing is, is stripping people back from unlearning everything that they've heard or seen or from, you know, well-meaning parents or well-meaning school systems. It's, it's just stripping us back to that innate self. All right. These next two clips are from my interview that was pretty recent with Kim Daniels, but I had to include it because this conversation was super energizing, really helped me understand things at a deeper level. And so I'm going to share two clips from this interview. The first one really is, it is about intuitive eating, but it's also about kind of that nuanced topic that I mentioned that I just love so much. And it's really about just the language of intuitive eating, the language with emotional eating and wellness and all the things. And it's just challenging, certainly from a marketing perspective to even know what to say and for good reason. So I think you're going to really enjoy that clip. And immediately following, you will hear Kim's answer to my question about the utility of intuitive eating and IFS internal family systems and how I think this answer makes a lot of sense for why intuitive eating might not be working for you or for one of your clients because it depends on how you're utilizing that tool, but it also kind of depends on if you take the IFS perspective, how your parts are using the tool of intuitive eating. So I love this answer and I feel like it's really crucial to understanding how and why this does or doesn't resonate with certain individuals. So enjoy that one as well. And I ran into this with a colleague of mine. We were trying to um, we we were trying to put together a proposal for the IFS conference in the fall, and she and I were having a hard time talking about it because she's kind of she's a wellness coach and she's really good at what she does. The language we were both using was not meshing, and mm-hmm. it and it was you know we're two people that hopefully kind of know what we're doing, and it was yeah. hard to talk about because. Yeah. We do have differences on how we see it. It's so, it's like diet culture has hijacked every word we use. Mm -hmm. And 
reference to these things and it's like, I don't even know what to say. I don't, I don't even know how to put it. I don't know how to put it. <laughs> so. I know. It's so true. I already have marketing is already not my strength, but like oh. this makes it so much harder. And I even know. the name of my business, right? Like, you know, wellness. And I'm like, oh. I, did I know, I, <laughs> I know. And I have a hard yeah. time even sort of saying, because it drives me nuts when people talk about like, oh, you have to end emotional eating. And I'm like, but you don't, you still get to be an emotional eater because food is emotional <laughs> and eating is emotional, but you can't, how do you market? Well, it's kind of sort of okay to emotionally eat sometimes. Following up on what you said about intuitive eating and the utility, but also feeling like it's sort of a bonus. How do you think about the utility of intuitive eating and IFS as it relates to healing your relationship with food? I mean, again, I think intuitive eating has a lot of great pieces to it. And it really, it blends really well with IFS because it is so focused on tuning into your body. There's a lot of misconceptions about intuitive eating out there. And I remember I went through the whole certification process with them to become like a certified intuitive eating counselor. And Mm -hmm. we did like group supervision with Evelyn Triboli, who is one of the creators of it. And I love her. I absolutely love her. So she was talking about the fact that people think that intuitive eating is just this giant free for all. You can eat whatever you want, whenever you want, and nobody cares. And it's not about health and it's not about nutrition. It's not about anything. It's just whatever. And she said, I understand why people think that because if you look at social media, every post about intuitive eating has either a donut or a cupcake. And I was like, oh my God, she's right. And I'm pretty sure mine do too. So we need Mm -hmm. to change that. Mm -hmm. But it really is all about tuning into your body and figuring out what foods work, what foods don't, knowing when you're hungry, knowing when you're full, knowing what foods are satisfying to you, what foods aren't. So that really is the biggest piece of intuitive eating. If you're doing IFS, you're doing that already. Figuring out where your parts are in your body, because that's like the first thing that we ask when we start working with a part is where do you notice that part in your body? People are already noticing how things show up in their bodies. And then of course we can sort of go, okay, so how does hunger show up in your body? How does fullness show up in your body? But so many times we have parts that are influencing our hunger and our fullness, especially fullness, because we have parts that talk us into continuing eating, even though we're full, or they just, they're just ignoring the whole fullness piece anyway. And we have parts that talk us into eating when we're not hungry and, you know, all that kind of stuff too. So I think that just doing intuitive eating without having any concept of IFS, you're working with your managers. You're still strengthening your manager parts. Mm -hmm. You're still going to be parts of you that don't necessarily turn it into a diet, but it is still very like, okay, now I have to check the hunger rating scale and make sure I'm starting eating at a three and I have to make sure I'm stopping at a seven. And there's just a lot of still, I think, a tendency to beef up the managers who are are just going to approach intuitive eating from from a protective piece. And as much mm-hmm. as they do have a principle on coping with your emotions with kindness, I think is what they call it. It's written by dietitians, you know? I mean, they're not therapists. You know, there's some decent coping skills in there, but it's not healing, right? Like they're, again, they're not trained therapists. They're not teaching you how to heal whatever it is that's kind of going on for your parts. And so, again, I think when you do that work with IFS, so much of this kind of falls into place and you can just add intuitive eating as kind of a skill 
skill set on top of it. Again, to really, what does hunger actually feel like for me? What foods actually make me feel full, make me feel satisfied? What movement does my body like versus I have to go to the gym for two hours for, you know, whatever. I think when you're really doing the IFS piece, you're already doing a huge piece of intuitive eating and you're becoming more self-led with your eating, which is, you know, essentially intuitive eating. And so then again, you can just sort of add some of the pieces onto from intuitive eating onto that. All right. So this next clip is from Michelle Seeger's interview. And this is, as I mentioned at the beginning, really a psychologist who I've followed her work for a long time. She also has a master's in public health. She applies self-determination theory in her book, No Sweat, to specifically exercise and how we understand our traditional views of exercise and how she in that book really challenges some of the status quo and some of the, the notions like you need to breathe hard and sweat to exercise in 10 minute bouts for it to count. And what I want to highlight here in this clip is really just the, we talk all the time about long-term motivation on this podcast, right? And self-determination theory tells us that we need to meet three key psychological needs for long-term behavior change. And one of them is a sense of relatedness or a sense of belonging. And again, this is a primal need that we all have. And when we think about researchers and the people that do research and the ways that they do research, it takes a lot of courage to stay in that field as Dr. Seeger has and to challenge it. And as you'll hear in this clip, it was a really positive outcome, but I love this podcast because I love, we get to see behind the scenes of the vulnerability it takes for people to put forth new innovative ideas and how crucial it is that we all come at this complex, nuanced problem from all angles. And so I'm so appreciative of Michelle's work, her time on the podcast. So yeah, check out this clip now. Yeah. I mean, I'd love to hear. So like I said, when I found your book, No Sweat, I was really excited because you, um, for the listeners, you're talking really about like, a, a, a. I don't know if it was just, I, I mean, it's been a bit since I've read the book. So I, I don't know that you just talk about self-determination theory, but I think that was pretty foundational in some of the ways you're talking about. We got to shift our view of exercise. And I know a lot of what you said in that book, I had never heard in the field of this idea of like, you know, what counts for exercise and these arbitrary ideas that we were told. And I was telling people in weight loss um, groups, like at least 10 minute bouts and make sure you're really breathing hard and sweating. So I, I remembered that very clearly. Um, I'm curious what made you decide to write um, that book for, for folks? Well, um, it's interesting because your first question was really focused on how I got started. And that and so the book is kind of the reverse. It's what have I learned over the last 20 years? It was published in 2015. So it's, it's really been quite a while. And that book reflected both the research that I had done as well as the research of others, but also all this health coaching that I had been doing. Mm -hmm. And I just decided, gosh, I need to get this out into the world. I need other people to understand what I believe is important to getting to changing our whole world when it comes to physical activity. Um, and so, you know, I, it's funny that you pointed that out because that was 
that was the single thing I was really kind of nervous about publishing because um, it really, it didn't align with the uh, quote unquote policies and rules, if you will, that everyone was stating. So I felt like I was putting myself on the line by, in a way, disagreeing what the standards of practice were, but I, um, I, I felt like there's enough science around in other areas that justified. And to tell you the truth, I, you know, I, I got, I asked really high level people who I thought they're either going to disagree with me and push back or, or, and not say, I can't, I can't endorse your book because of this. Um, or they're going to agree with me. And I was just shocked at everyone who I asked, these leaders in the field internationally were on board and said, you couldn't be more right about this. So I like gave a huge sigh of relief. And now, of course, the new recommendations all say what I said back in 2015, which is everything counts. Choose to move at any opportunity you have. This next clip is also related to challenging our assumptions about research, but somewhat different. And it's from my interview with Dahlia Kinsey, which was a really an interview that I continue to come back to. I occasionally re-listen. I, I just learned a lot. And Dahlia's book, Decolonizing Wellness, I really think I must read for professionals who work in this space. I think it's a lovely read for anyone who wants to improve their relationship with their body and just have a more broader understanding of the way that wellness culture excludes people of color or people of different marginalized backgrounds of the non-majority with regards to sexual orientation or gender identity and various other factors. But this clip is just a really nice example of one of the ways that research can really be missing the mark, you know, research is done by people predominantly of white background or very privileged background. Many times white males are leading or heading up the assumptions of the research. And I've been involved in a lot of research in my day and I, you know, I still do rely on research in many ways, but we have to always be aware of the places where research is asking the wrong questions, is, you know, not including diverse people in the research process, meaning asking and developing the hypotheses, but also, you know, in the actual process of being studied. And there's so many components to research. And so it's just an example and a, and a reminder of the ways that we think about weight and health and eating habits and the nuanced interplay. We can use some research, but we have to be very, very cautious. And I think that Dahlia just explains this very well in this clip. So enjoy. It really helps you see when there's a problem, if you are directly affected by the negative messaging, because yeah. a lot of times, if you're not in the group that's being bad mouth, you may believe all the justifications that they give you. So mm -hmm. a lot of times the story about people who are in larger bodies is they're this way because they are ignorant to what a healthy diet looks like. You know, if they would just change the way they ate, their body size would change. Now, if you are in a larger body and you've already followed 
all the rules about how to change your body size and you didn't get the result that you're promised, then you know that's a lie. But if you are a small person, you've always been, of course, you're going to believe this because a lot of the people spouting this information are authorities in their field and they seem to be presenting research. You have no reason to question it. However, at all the times that I was in class and they talked about Black Americans having poor health outcomes, and again, the assumption was, oh, it's a knowledge deficit. They just don't have the information. They don't know how to eat properly. And people kept assuming that across the board, everybody with Black skin in the United States comes from the same food culture, which couldn't be farther from the truth. Even in my own household, my mother's half Jamaican, she's half Cuban. My dad was raised in the South. Their food cultures are completely different. And my mother's food culture is so heavy on vegetables and so heavy on plants that the assumptions they were making about Black American food culture don't apply to me at all. Mm-hmm. And growing up, my mother never fried anything. I remember my dad like begging <laughs> for one of those little fry daddies. He's like, hey, it's small, or <laughs> yeah. I'm not going to fry that much stuff in it. But that was when I was already <laughs> in my early teens. And having fried chicken was like an event. And since we didn't grow up on it, none of us kids usually ate it. It was usually for company or something. It was a big deal. Mm -hmm. But that belief that we're all eating the same thing, that let me know right there. Well, this is a study. People are looking at the results of the study and taking it seriously. And from the beginning, their assumptions are off. And from the beginning, the questions that they're asking are certainly not questions I would be asking because I would know, does it make sense to group Black people together in this study, assuming that everyone is eating in a similar way because that's not grounded in reality. Now, if you wanted to look at maybe the the toll racialized stress was having on people, then sure, group these racialized people together, but you're making behavioral assumptions based Mm -hmm. on what? All right, so these next few clips are all about navigating the nuance as professionals, as individuals, the nuance between living in a world that prioritizes or says some bodies are better than others and the reality that many of us want to move away from that judgment and trying to just, again, navigate and live in that messy middle. This next clip's from my interview with Dr. Jillian Murphy. I already replayed this episode because it was so impactful to me. Uh, I highly recommend you listen to the whole thing, but here's a great clip from Dr. Murphy about navigating the nuance. Totally. And I think like, I think it's, um, you know, when you live in a world that um, has idealized dieting and weight loss, that the strength of some of that messaging is quite powerful in terms of trying to just balance the conversation. But I think that the lived reality for individuals is that we're often caught up in the messy middle of all of that. And it's just like adding another layer of shame and guilt. It's like, okay, you feel you feel bad because you don't like your body. And now you feel extra bad for feeling bad for not liking your body because like you should be a better activist. You should be a better feminist. You should be a better, you know, person, just be better. (laughs) It's like, but I'm just a human trying to live in all of this, you know? And so I'm like a big fan. I just, I recorded a podcast for mine actually. And it was so just yesterday and it was a follow-up with a woman. I had done this one-on-one session with and the, one of the most powerful tools from that session for her 
was being allowed to be honest about the sadness of not being in a thin body anymore or being able to be honest about the moments where she has the desire to go on a diet, you know, Mm -hmm. absolutely, and being able to say it out loud. All right. This next clip is from my interview with Shadow Ball, and it's actually a perfect example of what Dr. Murphy just said, which is like the lived experience of individual people is like we're living in the messy middle of all of this and I heard Shadow on Jen Radke's podcast first and I just had to invite her to share her story on my podcast and it's it was just a really fun conversation and I know I keep saying this but go listen to the full conversation it's all about the challenges of intuitive eating and shadows very real about that and very authentic and even this clip here shows like she's hesitant to share it but then she shares the realness and I think most of everyone really if they can't identify it with it most people can but even if you can't, you're going to appreciate the authenticity and the realness of um, of what she shares with us here. So enjoy this clip. We often talk about, or we or me, uh, people that I work with, uh, uh, the importance of not like towing the line and saying like I'm doing intuitive eating, but kind of subtly not doing intuitive eating, right? Having some diet mentality or whatever you want to call it, rules that kind of pulling you down. Did, can you relate to this? Can you speak to that a little bit? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I, uh, for me, one of the big things was, um, and I, I'm almost afraid to admit this part of it because it's also like fat phobic in its own right. Um, I was so scared of rising my set point again, that yeah. I was like so hopeful that by doing intuitive eating, I wouldn't get bigger. Like that was definitely like a big part of it. And also it was introduced to me, intuitive eating was introduced to me like a year and a half before my wedding. So there was still some stuff around that. And then what am I going to look like in the dress? And that's again, a whole other thing. Mm-hmm. Um, but I, <laughs> I, I only wanted to deal with the idea that I was going to keep getting smaller. I didn't want to deal with that initial bloat that I kept reading about that. Like if you start intuitive eating, you might gain weight at first and then it will normalize. Um, And that was my experience. I'm not going to put numbers on it, but yes, that did happen to me. Uh, When I started intuitive eating, like actually doing it, uh, I did put on weight and it was hard. Uh, And without trying at all, I'm not okay. Cause that's actually not what I mean. Trying in my previous life meant restriction, mm-hmm. but without restricting with, with just continuing the work of intuitive eating, my body has resettled into like the body I kind of am most comfortable at. Like mm-hmm. I'm very comfortable in my skin right now. And, uh, I, I didn't think that was possible for me at the size I currently am. Mm-hmm. Um, but this is where my most comfortable set point is. And I know that now. So do you know what helped you to kind of continue to push through in those difficult moments when there was some fear of seeing some, some weight gain? Um, again, this is almost like a fat phobic thought around it, but I was just so 
anticipating the drop-off. And I knew it doesn't happen for everyone. I know that for some people, the drop-off doesn't come. So that did scare me a lot that it might not come, but it did. And I, again, I don't want to put numbers on it. So I don't want people to like, cause I know it's going to be different for different people, but yeah. that idea that the majority of people see a bit of a gain and a bit of a loss and then a bit of a normalization process period. Um, that is my experience. And it's been, mm-hmm kind of nice and kind of nice to not have to buy a whole new summer wardrobe again because when I took out my summer clothes like in previous years I was either like again either way sometimes I'd pull out my summer clothes and I'd be so excited because everything was too big then the next summer everything would be too small that and you know like this was the first summer I pulled out my summer clothes and everything still fit And I was like, whoa, like, this is amazing. And it wasn't like, it didn't fit exactly the same because again, bodies change. Um, But it was kind of incredible to be like, I don't have to spend any money on new summer clothes this year. This is great. All right. This next clip is from my interview with Amy Braden. And Amy is someone who really embraced and learned how to heal her relationship with food for many years before many years later down the road deciding to have weight loss surgery and was gracious enough to come and share her experience. And this clip I think really shows, you know, Amy was able to figure out ways to pick and choose the different supports from the intuitive eating, weight inclusive world, as well as the weight loss surgery world. But she really highlights the the challenge in doing so and the challenge of finding spaces where she felt fully seen and not judged and so i think you're going to really appreciate this clip and it's something that i see a lot and i just appreciate amy giving voice to with her story so let's let's hear it one of the things i did after my surgery and actually before my surgery was really started seeking out podcast books influencers, things like that, that talked a lot about body neutrality, haze, you know, the healthy eating size, um, intuitive Mm -hmm. eating, because I wanted to go into this program that I knew was going to trigger a lot of this stuff with reminding myself. And it was almost like surrounding myself with this community, even if it was a digital one of people that would support it. But what I found, unfortunately, and there is a lot of that, I should say, I found your podcast that way. I found some other really good ones that way. Um, I also, unfortunately, have also hit up against some people that in the pendulum swing of reacting to the diet mentality and medical professionals telling people they have to have surgery, um, that there is an anti-weight loss surgery bias that some have that left me feeling fairly judged. Now, I am, I don't take that on personally necessarily but I've had to stop listening to a few because it just was too pervasive. It wasn't a single comment. It was part of their theme. Mm-hmm. And it made me sad because there are a lot of people out there that maybe have used this tool or may still decide to, that you could be turning away from all of this other thing. And, you know, a person may be thinking about it and still choose not to, but you still don't want to sit in judgment of others. We're all just going through our own process and our own life and figuring this all out. So, yeah. um, Yeah. It's been, it's been an interesting journey between that and between actually trying to find medical care that supports this new, I feel like I'm kind of finding a middle path, which 
I guess that's where the meditation practice helps too, <laughs> of finding provide medical providers, mental health providers, and also other resources that will support me and taking a little bit from this side and a little bit from that and a little bit from this and a little mm-hmm. bit from that and finding what works for me and mm-hmm. not worrying about the rest that doesn't. And there's just not a lot out there for people that are absolutely embracing that everybody is beloved and beautiful and nobody should be forced to change their body to be acceptable to anyone and yet want to provide, get health support. And Mm -hmm. I totally want the health system to disconnect body size and weight from health because they're correlative thing relationships at best, definitely not causal. Mm -hmm. And yet for some of us, if the way that your body size is extreme enough, it can provide for me, it was a relief to have some off to be able to pursue my other goals. I'm not a better person. I'm just a slightly different person who can exercise better now mm-hmm. <laughs> and is very happy to be able to go for a walk and not feel joint pain. And that's really was my goal. All right. This next clip is from Jesse Holden and It's also related to the nuance and social media and what she will sometimes advise her clients to do because of um, the fact that social media doesn't capture nuance all that well. So let's listen in. I think what's kind of interesting about social media and intuitive eating and haze is it ends up like, I'm trying to think of how I want to word this. Like, so diet culture, if you think about like this billion trillion dollar industry has had the loudest voice in the room for a really long time. Mm -hmm. So I think, I think Hayes and intuitive eating are trying to be that other voice. Yes. But this gray area is getting like completely lost on people. So in the, like, even with social media, with a lot of my one-on-one clients, we actually work on getting either completely away from social media or sometimes I have them unfollow intuitive eating accounts and even gentle nutrition accounts. Cause sometimes for them just seeing that post, they're like, wait, what am I doing wrong? Like I thought I, I want a salad. Am I not allowed to have a salad because that's diet cult? Like yes. it, it actually makes them just continuously question themselves, themselves and decreases their confidence in their choices. So a lot of times I am actually having them unfollow like both maybe diet culture and like weight centric that it's like this is the only way mm-hmm. but same with intuitive eating if that's getting promoted in a way that's not helping you then stepping away from that specifically in social media can be really helpful all right these next two clips are from my interview with dr yami of the veggie doctor radio i loved this interview so much and so the first clip is all about having kind of the intersection between the plant-based nutrition world and the intuitive eating world and her thoughts about that. And then the second clip is about the very controversial question of food addiction and also how there's two worlds. (laughs) They can really conflict. And so I love the way that she describes this. This is really, again, sort of something that I'm very passionate about is helping different sides, different camps, see each other's perspective. And uh, I love how she talks about, you know, the the pendulum swing. And, And I think we see this in so many areas of health, the pendulum swing, and we've all done it. Um, we've all learned about different 
topics and swung to one way as we're learning. And then, you know, if we can continue to remain open, we may end up swinging back and allowing ourselves to kind of, again, see all perspectives and have productive conversations, I think is essential. So enjoy these clips. I know that I did. Having one foot in each place, you know, in the plant-based nutrition world and the intuitive eating world, I realize how there might be a perceived conflict, especially for the people that are in the intuitive eating world. They feel like any sort of what they think is a diet or a restrictive way of eating goes against intuitive eating. But I really feel that the two can be reconciled. What's important is to understand the motivation of the individual, especially because motivation is in the title of your podcast. That's a good thing to talk about. <laughs> I but, certainly agree. <laughs> you know, each person can really, they know why are you doing this? If a person, mm -hmm. the only reason they want to eat in a vegan style or a plant-based style is because they're hoping, even if it's a secret hope that they're not admitting to anybody, that it's going to make them skinny. That's probably restrictive. You know what I'm saying? Mm -hmm. But if a person's like, like me, like I started with an experiment, I was curious, how is this going to make me feel? Is this yep. going to help my athletic performance? And I had all kinds of health benefits from it too. And I was just like, I love the way it makes me feel the philosophy and the values aligned with my personality type and the type of person I am. It is not for me in the least bit restrictive. And so each individual has the capacity to determine for themselves, their motivation for choosing a certain style of eating. And if it starts to feel like that diety restrictive thing, then that's not going to be good for you. It's not going to be the way for you. But mm -hmm. I think that there's lots of people that they come to plant-based nutrition for other reasons, whether it's environmental reasons or ethical reasons, and it does not feel restrictive to them so that they can combine the two together to give them the well-being that they desire. Let's talk about food addiction because you did an incredible interview with Dr. Ashley Gearhart. That's actually, I think one of the first podcast episodes I listened to yours, of yours. And I, I laughed to myself because you were saying how excited you were about the interview afterwards. And I was like, that's how I get about podcasting. So it just <laughs> made me smile, but food, uh, food addiction is a very hot emotional topic in the health at every size intuitive eating community. And I'm just curious your thoughts on this, your experiences with this and kind of how you approach this. Yes, that's a great question. So I did a little mini series on this because I actually interviewed a person in the plant-based community who's plant-based now who identifies as a food addict. And then a couple of experts in, in the field as well. And I say, in my podcast episode intro that I have literally been on both sides of the spectrum in my beliefs. <laughs> so I was mm -hmm. at a time in my life where I'm just like, I have food addiction and everybody's a food addict. And then I went to like the opposite polar opposite, which was food addiction is not real. I mean, especially when I got really immersed into the intuitive eating stuff and I'm like, it doesn't exist. It's not real. This is all created from dieting. And now I'm in the middle. So the pendulum uh -huh. swung and swung the other <laughs> way. And now it's kind of landing in the middle. And yeah. I believe that food addiction is a spectrum. And I do think that there are some people that probably qualify and meet criteria as an addict to food. And I think that some of these things are going to be genetically determined. They're going to be determined by what has been available to the person in their environment, what habits they 
were instilled in when they were children and how it developed. But I think if we deny that food addiction exists, or we say that everybody is a food addict, it's doing a disservice to a lot of different people. Um, Mm -hmm. because if we say everybody's a food addict, there's all these other people that are eating emotionally or having rebound eating because of restriction, then we're ignoring that problem. We're ignoring the problem that exists. That is restriction and diet mentality and all those things, which definitely needs to be addressed for a lot of people because it's dangerous and it sucks joy from life and it can lead to suicide. So we definitely want to be mindful that sometimes people can feel like they're food addicts or have that response or that behavior in response to restriction and self-imposed restriction. Cause we know it happens when there's true scarcity, right? We we've seen the experiments. We know from examples of food insecurity, children that are raised in houses with food insecurity, they are more likely to overeat and feel out of control around food that is caused by restriction, but they didn't impose it on themselves. It happened to them. Right? Mm -hmm. So we know that this exists, but then on the other end of the spectrum, If we deny that food addiction can exist in some individuals, then we're not being compassionate to those individuals that are really struggling within this environment where food is, and especially high calorie density food is available at all times and was, and is within fingertips reach. So I think that those individuals do need compassionate people that are going to help them if they desire, if that's their goal in their life to come to a place of balance and well-being in their life where food is no longer the center thing, the center joy, the only joy that they're acquiring from life. Mm -hmm. So I do think that it is a spectrum and that we have to come in balance. But again, this is another area where there's two communities that seem to be in conflict with each other. So the food addiction community, of course, they're immersed in their research and they see how people suffer and struggle. And then the intuitive eating community, that's like, no, this is all created by diet mentality. If we didn't have diet mentality, there would be no food addicts, but I don't think that's true. First of all, because the other thing that's not going to change is the fact that we have this high calorie density, hyper palatable food available everywhere in the whole world now. So we have to acknowledge that this exists and that this is our environment now. And that because of that, there's going to be consequences. There's going to be people that probably do develop food addiction. Just like if there were no alcohol, there'd be no alcoholics. Right. So that's my feeling on it. Maybe it's a long winded answer, but I I think that the answer is somewhere in the middle. All right. This clip is from my interview with Dr. Robin Pashby, who talks a lot. Actually, currently, if you follow her on social media or LinkedIn, you'll see her talking a lot about the new weight loss meds, Ozempics, malglutide, and trying to reduce shame for people that make that choice. So this clip is a little bit about her decision to use the term obesity and which is a term that she uses a lot based on her client's preference. And I think it's just interesting. I think we could probably do a full podcast about language and the nuance with different language to use. And it really, I mean, I think my, my take on it is that it really depends. It depends on the person. It depends on what that language means to them, what meaning they make out of obesity being called a disease and it depends on how it lands but I think it's really important to hear all perspectives and 
this perspective with Dr. Peshby is a really important one. So I'm going to include that clip now and how that terminology and language can be a really empowering thing for many people. Which circles back to the beginning when I said yeah. the reason I use the word obesity is because I think once people understand that there's genetic and biological and neurochemical and behavioral and psychological and environmental and social um, and political reasons that they are struggling with this issue of excess adipose tissue, it sort of takes it out of the hands of the weight bias message, which is like, if you just had more willpower, you'd be fine, right? Everyone could be thin if they just ate less and moved more, um, which is obviously not true. (laughs) All right. This next clip is from my interview with Rachel Rickabaugh, who came and shared her individual journey with which included a weight loss journey but also really included looking at her relationship with food and you know eventually developing an eating disorder and that whole thing but I included a clip where she talks about what's kind of started this health journey for her and she talks about her primary care doctor connecting with her connecting with an obesity medicine doctor and I want you to listen to it and remember that. So we're talking all about language and doing things as providers, you know, working on understanding and be able to use the right language. And I think what matters the most is that human connection with your provider. And I don't think you have to do it perfectly at all to have a very, very influential impact on someone's health. And You'll hear Rachel talk about the compassion she felt from this physician, and it's it's everything. So I want everyone to take away from that. It's that human connection. This is true in therapy. This is true in provider or physician-patient relationships. It's the human connection and how you show up. It's, yes, the guidance we give, the strategies, that plays a role, but so much of it is the human connection, and I, which is why I'm so passionate about especially our trainings we have coming up for providers and professionals because it's really helping you to show up as a provider in a way that's going to help your clients develop that self-trust and thrive so enjoy this clip from the interview with rachel and through my primary care there she connected me with an obesity medicine doctor um and i never really met somebody that talked to me so like compassionately about you know, my body and who I was. And yes, like we, you know, I wanted to lose weight and trying to help with that, but that really wasn't the focus. I felt like the focus was, you know, who I am and what I was doing. And then like, okay, what can we do that would help my health? Um, You know, we set an initial weight loss goal that in comparison to what I thought I should lose was you know, fairly small, but then I think three habit goals, like pretty simple ones, you know, for me at the time that felt doable. And, you know, I honestly only tried two of the three because the third one was more like movement based. And I was just, you know, not ready for that yet, but just working um, on my health in that way, just really changed how I saw things. Um, even like within the first few weeks, I realized, okay, I'm feeling a lot better physically, mentally, um, in a way, like looking back on it, 
like it, I feel like it mirrors a little bit of what I'm learning about intuitive eating. I, I didn't have those words at the time, but some of that gentle nutrition piece. And mm-hmm. I think the key word was, it was very gentle and it just fit with where I was at at the moment. All right. So this final clip is from my interview with Dr. Adia Gooden and you know, I, I feel compelled to share the quote from my Angelou first, which is people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did, but people will never forget how you made them feel. And I actually think that this applies to like all my podcast interviews. There was just certain feelings I had with certain conversations that I will never forget. The cool thing about podcasting is I can go back and listen to what we said in this interview there was something that I felt, and it's so interesting now that I've been learning internal family systems for about a year. I think there was an experience when Adia was kind of modeling the self-compassionate self-talk. It was connecting with a part of me that I am not super compassionate with and in that I've been working on actively. The IFS models really helped me with that. And so it was really interesting to go back to listen to this interview because she actually talks about protective parts of us. And um, that's, you know, language from the IFS model. But as far as I know, Adia is not necessarily aligned with IFS. So there's just so many ways to talk about similar topics. We do talk about a food example in this interview and throughout, but it's really, as so many of my clients and I discover over time, it's sometimes about food and body, but underneath, it's really about the same stuff. It's really related to you know, being able to meet yourself with true compassion and figuring out what that looks like and how to actually connect with yourself in that way. It's everything. There's some layers before we get there, but you can absolutely get there. And that's when the healing really happens. And that's when the food and body stuff, um, not that it never matters, but it ends up, we can kind of move that aside and get to those deeper layers. So I wanted to include this clip because it was really influential to me and I think it will be to you as well. So enjoy that. And then I'll come and share a couple last thoughts before we finish up this episode 100. I'd love to talk about your kind of favorite strategies that people can take to improve their self-worth today, um, because I know you have a lot of really great ones. So what are some of your favorite ones? Yeah, I think the one I tend to come back to a lot is, is self-compassion. And I know it's talked about a lot, but Mm -hmm. I think people have a hard time actioning it, um, and, um, have a lot of resistance and a lot of fear around what would happen if they were kind to themselves. And I think one, I encourage people to, to, um, experiment and test it out and see like, okay, so when you beat yourself up, what happens? And usually you hear, well, I feel awful and unmotivated. And then I just want to sit on the couch and binge Netflix for the rest of the day. And then I feel guilty that I did that. And then I blah, 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 right? Like you go down the road and I'm sure this relates so well to, you know, eating and nourishing. It's like, okay, well, you ate this food that, you know, maybe was not as nourishing for your body. You know what I mean? Like whatever this like, okay, you're, you're, you know, gluten sensitive and you had a donut and it made you feel bad. And then you shame yourself for eating the donut and then right. Like in down spiral. And then what are you going to do? You're going to say, well, I ate a donut. So I'm going to eat some cake and I'm going to eat some cookie, right? Like it just creates this thing. And so it's like, if you look at that, you can see like not helpful. And so the alternative is instead of, and so I would describe that as sort of abandoning yourself right? Sort of saying, I'm done with you. Like you did that. I'm done with you. I'm walking away like this disgust 
I'm like, oh, right. And it's like, so you're already feeling bad. You already maybe made a mistake or experienced a failure. And then you just are like, oh, right to yourself. And it's like, oof. And so the alternative is saying, can you be there for yourself? Right? Like, can you just say, okay, you're feeling a lot of shame right now because you ate that thing or you did that thing or you messed up on that email and your whole body is feeling like, oh my gosh, I'm going to be rejected. I'm going to lose. Like I, you feel awful, but it's okay. Like I'm here for you. Like I'm not, I'm not, I'm not going to leave you. I'm not going to leave you. And it's okay. Right. Like that is really it. And I, I encourage people, like, if that feels like a bridge too far, imagine yourself as a kid. If that feels like a bridge too far, imagine your favorite baby animal, like a little puppy. And you're just like, it's the puppy that's upset and scared. And you're not going to kick the puppy out and lock the door. You're going to say, come here. You're going to say, it's okay. I, I got, I know that was scary. I got you. Right. And all of those things, they do a couple of things. One is you're treating yourself as worthy, even though there was a mistake or a failure or something happened, right? So that's a message to you that you're still worthy. It also calms your nervous system down. It's, so, it's soothing physically and neurobiologically. And then it reactivates your prefrontal cortex so you can make another choice, right? So you can say, okay, I sent that email. It had a big error. Okay, what do I need to do to clean it up? right? Or I, I just said something that was hurtful and I'm feeling a lot of shame, but I'm there with myself. And so what do I need to do to apologize, right? So then you're able to pivot and be accountable for the mistake or whatever happened in a kind way, but not in a punishing way. Yeah. I love that. And I know that, I mean, who can't benefit from that? And I can fall sometimes into this trap of like, you know, that's this for some people and and for me probably particularly in the past maybe even a little bit now talking to yourself like that kindly that supportively as I would to my kids like it's like feels almost like um I don't even know what to describe it because I totally believe in it right like I know it's effective but they're still almost still even with me and it's like why are we so hesitant to be our own biggest supporter I don't know for sure the answer to that but I know that we all would benefit from doing exactly what you just said and and I love that you gave some steps to if that feels like too much like the kid and the puppy example is great because we're so much better because sometimes I, I often do like you know your your friend but we are always harder on adults and our friends probably an adult and so I, I like that reminder a lot because I actually forget about that sometimes I talk about self-compassion all the time as being effective but do you have a sense of why we're so hesitant to, I mean, you, you talked about like the fear that it wouldn't work, right? Or that you'd become mm. complacent, but it feels like there's a, just a lot of cultural pressure and mm-hmm. about that too. Yeah. I mean, I think we, we have a culture of like man up, woman up get it Mm -hmm. together. Don't cry. Don't pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Yeah. Yeah. And, and the reality is it's vulnerable, right? It's vulnerable to say, I'm feeling a lot of shame and I'm feeling right. And it can feel easier to say, I'm just going to be hard on myself and like beat myself up. Right. It can feel protective. Right. Mm -hmm. Part of the reason is when we do that, even though we're really actually making it worse, it feels we're avoiding 
contact with the emotion by judging and criticizing or what could I have done differently? And all of that sort of pulls us to avoid the emotion. So mm -hmm. if the emotion is sadness and that feels really vulnerable, judging ourselves and thinking about all the reasons, all the ways we could have done it differently and all the reasons we suck, it sort of pulls us out of the sadness and yep. that can feel more strong kind of thing, powerful. Um, Mm -hmm. than the sitting with like, I feel deeply disappointed or I feel betrayed or I feel hurt, right? Those are vulnerable emotions and sitting with those and honoring them and acknowledging them is counter to the like, buck up, I don't care. It doesn't matter. It doesn't affect me. I'm unaffected kind of mentality that is very American <laughs> in some ways and um, can feel easier in the short term. But, you know, what I like to talk about with clients is like, that doesn't mean the emotion just went away. <laughs> it's just right. going to come back in a different way, in a less healthy way. Um, yep. Yeah. Yeah. I, lo I love that. And I also want to share, like when I was listening to your podcast and you kind of went through some of the self-talk that you used for yourself. And even now, like, I don't have necessarily anything emotional. I'm like working through like today, like I, you know, pr feeling pretty good today, but it like actually wells up emotion in me just listening to that. Cause I'm, and it's like, it's, it's interesting. Cause it's, that happened when I was listening to the podcast. It happened when I heard you say it now. Cause I think my intuition is like, yes, like we mm. all need to be doing that. Like I need to be doing that for myself more. Like, and it's just, it's very powerful. So I really appreciate like how tangible and practical the way you describe these things are, because it's really hard for people to wrap their head around that when they aren't used to doing it. Yeah. It's a big, it can be a really big shift. And that's why the like, okay, imagine your favorite baby animal. Like you would not be mean to a cute little puppy that's crying. If you <laughs> wouldn't. No, you know? And it's like, it's no, not actually out of it. <laughs> right. It's not about you. It's about this little puppy is scared and ashamed. It just like peed on the floor or something <laughs> and at least sad and then scared. Yeah. And what are you going to do? You're going to hug it. And you're going to say, you know, I'm not leaving you. Right. Like you're all, you're safe here. That's the, that's the piece I think that might bring up the emotion. Yeah. I'm not leaving you. Right. Like, mm -hmm. well, there's, there's a couple different pieces, but like, yeah, it's so powerful. I'm not going anywhere to yeah. yourself. So cool. I love that. All right. So that's it for episode 100. Thank you so much for being here. Uh, if you've been your newer podcast listener, welcome. I hope you enjoyed some highlights. I hope it made you want to go back to some of the previous episodes because there's some really good ones in the archives. And if you've been listening for a while, thank you so much for being on this journey with me. I, uh, I wouldn't change it. I'm so glad I started my podcasting journey and I've learned so much from everything. Each and every one of my guests have taught me something, if not many things. I love hearing from you as the listeners. So continue to send me your thoughts, send me your emails. If you haven't, please give us a five-star review. Truly, thank you for being here and being in this space to learn and grow together. So have a wonderful rest of your day. And before we finish today's episode, I have a really quick message from a special guest, my daughter. Please review from my mom's podcast. Make something from my mom's podcast, please. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in today. 
Your time is valuable, and it means so much to me that you're here. Despite the title of this podcast, many of our topics are not always easy. Change is hard, and let's face it, life and truly looking inward at ourselves can be uncomfortable. That's why I'm grateful. Grateful for you and your willingness to listen, learn, and keep an open mind. I invite you to learn more by going to drshawnhondorp.com or finding me on Instagram at psychology.of.wellness. If you're enjoying this podcast, it would be amazing if you could give it a review so more people can find it. Thanks, and I truly hope you have an energetic and inspired day.